Listener Production. Hello, it is Friday, January 14. I'm Katrina Blowers. Welcome to The Briefing. Today, we're going to take a look at one of the biggest news stories happening in the world right now. No, it's actually nothing to do with COVID. It's the talks between the US and Russia over the future of Ukraine. No one really knows what's going on inside Vladimir Putin's head, but certainly this has been building for years now. Large sections of the population speak Russian. So from their point of view, it's very much their backyard. No, it should have nothing to do with the US. That's this morning's briefing topic, a look behind the curtain into the emergent crisis on the Russia-Ukraine border. Before we get to the headlines, if you love keeping up to date and you love your news like me, why not take part in the briefing quiz a bit later today? Just go to the briefing's Instagram page and you can challenge yourself, see how well you've been listening, how well you've been staying up to date this week. And while you're there, sign up for our brand new newsletter. You'll get extra insight behind the scenes content. It also gives you the chance to have your say and we really do take that seriously. We love hearing from you guys. The link is in our bio on our Instagram page. All right, let's get into today's headlines. Prince Andrew has been stripped of all his military affiliations and royal patronages. He will no longer be referred to as His Royal Highness. Buckingham Palace released a statement this morning saying, with the Queen's approval and agreement, the Duke of York's military affiliations and royal patronages have been returned to the Queen. The Duke of York will continue not to undertake any public duties and is defending this case as a private citizen. Now, all this comes after the Prince this week failed in a bid to have his sex case trial thrown out of a court in New York. That lawsuit had been filed by Virginia Dufresne, who alleges she was sexually trafficked by Jeffrey Epstein to Prince Andrew when she was just 17 years old. Prince Andrew denies those allegations. A New York judge ruling this week the court case will proceed, most likely between September and December this year. Buckingham Palace now says, of course, he will defend that case as a public citizen. National Cabinet has agreed to expand isolation exemptions, freeing up hundreds of thousands of people to get back to work. We know what we have to hit, keep our hospitals going, keeping our health system strong and keeping as many people at work. PM Scott Morrison there. The new rules will apply to everyone working in transport and freight, as well as non-public-facing healthcare, emergency services, teachers and childcare workers, and energy and waste management workers. People in those sectors now only need a negative rat to avoid quarantine. Let's hope they can get those. Projections show absenteeism from the workforce could be as high as 10% at any point over the next few weeks. ACTU Secretary Sally McManus says relax the rules could have a downside though. We're worried that these announcements may mean that more people will get sick, not less. And the aim at the moment needs to be to stop our all of our hospitals being overwhelmed. Meanwhile, National Cabinet has also agreed schools must start back on time to ensure parents aren't taken out of the workforce to look after kids. 
The Novak Djokovic saga continues. He was named yesterday to play in the Australian Open's official draw up against a fellow Serbian player in the first round, but he could still be sent home, with Immigration Minister Alex Hawke yet to make a decision. The minister isn't the only one poring over the tennis star's documents. Djokovic is now being investigated in three different countries for breaking COVID rules. In Serbia, for going to an interview after testing positive. In Spain for training there while being unvaccinated and, of course, here over his medical exemption. Djokovic's lawyers say they will file an injunction if the immigration minister does use his powers. The tournament, however, is just three days away and it is possible Djokovic could be withdrawn after play has already begun. World number four, Stefanos Tsitsipas, has had his say. thought, you know, I can, I can just come to Australia unvaccinated and not having to follow the protocols that they gave me, which is just, it, it takes a lot of uh, daring to do, I think, and putting a Grand Slam kind of at, at risk. I love how he used the word daring. I think a lot of Aussies have used very different words to describe this over the last week or so. Sitsipas had been vaccine hesitant himself, but he got the jab due to the Open's requirements. The Western Australian Premier Mark McGowan says he will make life very difficult for the unvaccinated come January 31. COVID has been around now uh, for two years. It's slowing, showing no signs of slowing down over east, no signs of slowing down around the world. Uh, I expect these requirements will be in place for years to come. So proof of vaccination is being extended to most public venues in WA from the end of the month, including gyms, cafes, even Perth Zoo. In Queensland, where I'm broadcasting to you from today, the border checkpoints are finally being dismantled after being put up almost two years ago. Now is the time for the barricades to come down uh, as we head towards hitting that 90% next week. Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk, music to many people's ears. Queensland's struggling tourism industry has welcomed the move with hopes it will mean visitors returning in much greater numbers. Justice has finally been served for a gay hate crime after three decades. 50-year-old Scott White has pleaded guilty in a Sydney court to the murder of American mathematician Scott Johnson in 1988. White's decision coming as a surprise. He had denied the charges up until Monday when suddenly he said guilty, I'm guilty over the top of the Supreme Court officer reading out the charge. Many emotions. Uh, I think... Um, primarily, I'm, I'm feeling relief and I am thinking about my brother um, and that a lot of people cared about him. That was Scott Johnson's brother Steve speaking to the ABC there. Steve has been a staunch advocate for justice for his brother. Johnson's naked body was found at the bottom of a cliff near the Sydney suburb of Manly. He was just 27 years old. It's taken three coronial inquests, a record $2 million in reward money and of course the persistence of family members and police to reach this point. Scott White will be sentenced on May the 2nd. And the armourer who was responsible for weapons on the set of Alec Baldwin's Rust movie is suing the film's weapons supplier. It comes in the wake of the shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins after Baldwin accidentally fired a live round from a prop pistol. 
Hannah Guterres-Reed alleges that boxes marked as inert dummy rounds actually included live bullets. Now, the supplier who is being sued, Seth Kenny, has said it's not possible the live rounds came from his company or himself because dummy rounds are individually rattle-tested. The dummy rounds rattle and live rounds do not. Gosh, this is getting so complicated now, isn't it? So much finger-pointing. Guterres-Reed's lawsuit also claims Baldwin ignored a request to attend a cross-draw session about a week before the tragedy, a move he was practising when the gun went off. All right, that's it for the headlines today. Up next, we take you to the Ukraine border for what's shaping up to potentially be the biggest international story of the year. As we've been going about our Christmas and New Year's plans and probably trying to avoid getting or spreading Omicron, in another corner of the world, 100,000 Russian troops have been amassing on the borders of the Ukraine. And by the looks of it, they're getting ready for war. While on the front pages of Australian newspapers, we've seen the supermarket shortages and Novak Djokovic, the US and Russia have been holding high-level and significant talks in Europe. Russia is warning of military measures if the West doesn't meet its demands. They want a commitment. NATO won't deploy its weapon systems in Ukraine and an end to what they call provocative military exercises. For us, it's absolutely mandatory to make sure that Ukraine never, never, ever becomes member of NATO. That's the Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov. The US isn't backing down. It's threatened to impose severe economic sanctions on Russia if the Kremlin invades. So on today's briefing, we're looking at why this has become a major flashpoint and why Australia is watching so closely. Joining us is Adam Crichton. He's the US correspondent for the Australian newspaper Adam, how has it come to this? Well, look, there's about 100,000 troops, the US says, that have been amassing there for months now. And the US makes a very good point in all of its negotiations. Why are they there, if not to foreshadow some invasion of the Ukraine? There doesn't seem to be any other purpose for them being there. And that's what's prompted this series of phone calls between the US President and Vladimir Putin. And also this week, this series of meetings in Europe between the NATO allies and the Russian officials. Uh, But so far, there's been zero agreement. Russia hasn't said that it's going to move the troops elsewhere or send them back to the barracks, uh, so to speak. And on the other hand, the, uh, the Europeans and the Americans have said that they're not going to agree to a Russian proposal whereby NATO would not be allowed to expand into the Ukraine. So it's a pretty insoluble situation at the moment, and uh, neither side is giving in. These tensions have been building for decades now, really, and in many ways, it's just a way of life for people living in the area. What has exacerbated it recently? And do we believe Russia when they say that they won't invade the Ukraine? Well, look, it's really very hard to say. No one really knows what's going on inside Vladimir Putin's head. But certainly this has been building for years now. I mean, of course, they invaded part of Ukraine in 2014. They seized the Crimea. They kind of easily took that off off the Ukraine. And from Russia's point of view, the Ukraine is part of Russia in a broad sense. If you go back over the centuries, the Russians have have controlled Ukraine on and off. Uh, You know, large sections of the population speak Russian. So from their point of view, it's very much their backyard. And it's not, you know, it should have nothing to do with the US. 
From the point of view of the rest of the world, though, of course, they worry that, uh, I mean, quite aside from the fact that Ukraine would like to stay independent, but if they let Russia take Ukraine, then what's stopping them from taking some of the other former Soviet states in Eastern Europe? So the US really wants to set a precedent here that, uh, that Russia won't be able to go any further. It's a risk calculus. Uh, so the US has threatened very, very severe penalties. They've ruled out war. I mean, the US has said that they're not going to fight for Ukraine, but they'll do everything short of that. It's just going to be up to Putin, really. I mean, all the cards are with him. What's Vladimir Putin got to lose by invading? What does he have on the line here? If he invaded, there'd obviously be a lot of fighting, a lot of deaths uh, on both sides, and there'd be these severe sanctions, which the US has has hinted at. I mean, it's been vague deliberately to create some uncertainty in Russians' minds, but, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that they would boot Russia out of the international payment system, that they would impose uh, sanctions on uh, Russian individuals from travelling overseas. They've also hinted at stopping exporting things to Russia that Russia really needs and kind of blockading Russia's own exports. So there'd be massive penalties for uh, for Russia, that's that's true, but, uh, but Putin's probably hoping or thinking that they would blow over, over after a few years, which is what happened largely in 2014. You know, the US huffed and puffed, but ultimately Russia got its way in the end and it probably uh, thinks that it could do so again. And you'd probably have to say that uh, Europe and the US, you know, they aren't necessarily on the same page. For instance, there's this massive gas pipeline called Nord Stream 2 and the Europeans, or at least a significant chunk of them, would quite like this Russian gas to flow into Europe as they're having an energy crisis, they've turned off their nuclear power stations and they need gas. The Americans do not want that to happen. And and so there's a lot of disagreement, especially between Germany and the US over that particular pipeline. And so Putin knows that. So he realises that the alliance between the US and Europe is not as strong as it might seem outwardly. And how has that changed recently with the departure of Angela Merkel? Obviously, there's shifting governments within Europe, but Germany had been a sort of stable force in these sort of negotiations. So how has that changed? So the US government is still sizing up the new German government. It's a coalition government. There's a large green minority. Germans are very pacifist on this issue. They they don't want war. So I think it's still unclear about where the new German government uh, stands on this because there are different ministers that say different things about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The new Chancellor Schultz has not been particularly clear himself. Uh, so the US is really leading this. Ultimately, it has all of the wealth and the military, kind of, kind of the military might, so to speak, on this issue uh, compared to Europe. And so I think the Europeans will kind of largely follow what the US does on this issue. And, and you know, this is also setting a bigger precedent for China too, right? I mean, the other issue, of course, is Taiwan, which is not necessarily too dissimilar from a Ukrainian situation. And so China will be watching uh, very closely to see how the US behaves around the Ukraine. That leads into my next question. China has been looming as a major tension point, which has really been a distraction for countries like the US. But now, of course, this has come up. So, you know, what does it mean for broader stability? Can the US have an influential role in both, I guess, the Pacific and the growing tensions with China here, which affect Australia, and also lead negotiations and have a strong influence in Europe? Is it possible that they can be involved in both of these in the way that countries like Australia would benefit from? Yeah, look, I think it still can. I mean, it still has an enormous military. It's still a very, very powerful country. I think, you know, it can walk and chew gum, so to speak, at the same time. But I think the more pressing concern at the moment is is the Russia-Ukraine situation. It's not so much China-Taiwan. I mean, I think even the most pessimistic analysts don't think China's going to make a move 
on Taiwan in the next few years, whereas we're talking a few months in the case of, of the Russia-Ukraine situation. Kind of in the longer term, the US's power is, you know, relatively weakening uh, compared to China, at least. And so it's going to be harder for it to exert itself the way it once did, kind of at every corner of the globe. You know, the Russia-Ukraine situation for Australia, I don't think is is of immediate relevance, obviously, because we're so far away from the area. But certainly we'd be watching closely to see how the US, you know, behaves in relation to Russian threats. Because if it does turn out that Russia somehow gets its way, then that's going to be kind of a huge blow, I guess, to the perception that the US would step in in the Pacific in a major way and lend help to Taiwan. So I think to the extent it illustrates the, the metal, if you like, of the Biden administration, that's how it's relevant to Australia. That was Adam Crichton, who's the US correspondent for the Australian newspaper. Elizaveta Isakova is a Geneva-based correspondent for the Russian state news agency RIA Novosti. She's been covering this story and while she says she doesn't represent the Russian government, she agrees there's not a real appetite for war. I think it's uh, in no interest uh, for Russia to invade Ukraine. First of all, it's, uh, it's sort of a sister country. Uh, we have a lot of uh, Ukrainians that live in Russia and we have a lot of uh, Russians that still live and work in Ukraine. I think uh, it's more or less clear that Russia first doesn't want to invade Ukraine. And uh, secondly, financially and economically, it's not very wise uh, to invade the other country or to start war for Russia. Because we all know that Russia is under sanctions and uh, we all, the whole world is in a pandemic right now. So we have uh, other issues to solve. And uh, I don't think that uh, there is actual threat of Russian troops entering on the ground to Ukraine. Elizaveta, when we spoke to Adam, he mentioned the pipeline as a really critical issue. How do you think that's going to play out? Among one of the uh, threats from the United States is just to block um, uh, North Stream 2, the pipeline that's built uh, on the north um, by, by Russian Federation to um, supply gas to European Union. And in case, for example, it will be sanctioned and uh, it uh, will not be finished, uh, it will be Europe who will suffer. Prices on the gas will rise. And uh, even now we see this uh, in this winter, the prices are high. In some countries, uh, Governments are forced to manipulate prices on food markets because uh, the prices on uh, gas are raised. Whatever tough sanctions that the United States, for example, might impose to Russia, they can backfire to European Union in the first place because uh, countries of the European Union, they're closer to to Russian borders, closer to Russia, and uh, they are involved uh, with the Russian market more than the United States. So that was Elizaveta Izakova, who is a Geneva-based correspondent for the Russian state news agency RIA Novosti. Interesting, isn't it, Annika, how we've had our news cycles dominated by so many other things, but this could be one of the biggest international news stories of 2022. Mm, even from a military perspective, I think a lot of um, Australian eyes are focused on our area, of course, the Asia-Pacific but it'll be interesting to see how the US handle both uh, local domestic issues sort of for us and our region versus what's happening in Europe. 
All right, that is it for us on our first week back for 2022 on The Briefing. Thanks so much for joining us this week. But of course, we have The Weekend Briefing coming up first thing tomorrow with Jamila Rizvi. Jam, what have you got for us? This week on The Weekend Briefing, I have chatted to Lucy Durack. Now, if you don't recognise that name, you will recognise the voice. She is the literal queen of Australian musical theatre. She has played all the roles you can possibly imagine from Elle Woods in Legally Blonde to Glinda in Wicked. She's currently starring as Princess Fiona in Shrek. She is an extraordinary talent as a singer and an actress and she's one of the bubbliest, loveliest people I've ever met. This is the perfect way to start the year. All right, Jam, thanks so much for that. We will be back in your ears first thing Monday morning. Have a fantastic weekend. Listener.